All right, I am turning it on, so we should be getting live participants in in just a moment. All right, uh, welcome to the next session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. We are glad that you are able to join us for this year's COVID edition of our symposium, all online. And we do hope to gather in person once again next year in Phoenix. We want to especially thank our sponsors who have generously joined us for this digital version of events. You can learn more about their various resources designed to support the K-12 classical education, or sorry, the K-12 classical by visiting the exhibitors tab in the virtual attendee hub. Now, scientific inquiry or natural philosophy plays an important role in the traditional classical liberal arts education. Uh, however, the teaching of science today is often undertaken in a way that is deeply incongruous with the tradition's understanding of nature and the purpose of scientific inquiry. Uh, so in this session, Dr. Diener advocates for restoration of science to the liberal arts tradition, leading us in an examination of the history and philosophy of science within that tradition. So I'm very pleased to introduce the headmaster of Hillsdale Academy and lecturing professor of education at Hillsdale College, Dr. David Diener, who's here with us today presenting Restoring Science to the Classical Liberal Arts Tradition. Dr. Diener is a fellow on the Alquin Fellowship National Council, serves on the Board of Directors for the Society of Classical Learning and the Board of Academic Advisors for the Classical Learning Test, and offers consulting services through Classical Academic Press. He is the author of Plato, The Great Philosopher Educator, and serves as the series editor for Classical Academic Press's series, uh, Giants in the History of Education. He holds a BA in Philosophy and Ancient Languages from Wheaton College, and an MA in Philosophy and MS in History and Philosophy of Education, and a dual PhD in Philosophy and Philosophy of Education from Indiana University. Now this promises to be a really great session. And afterward, we will have several minutes to field questions from the audience. So if you look at the right side of your screen, you'll have the option to submit and vote for prospective questions for Dr. Diener afterward. And before we begin in just a moment, we would like to take a moment to thank Classical Academic Press for their sponsorship of this session.
Welcome to this session titled Restoring Science to the Classical Liberal Arts Tradition. I'm David Diener here at Hillsdale College. Thanks for joining me today. I would argue that our understanding of the term science today is in crisis. On the one hand, science has been elevated to a position of almost divine authority in the minds of many. But on the other hand, science has been largely torn away, rent asunder, and decontextualized from the important role that it has played historically within the classical liberal arts tradition. So what we have today is a group of scientific disciplines that, to paraphrase a statement C.S. Lewis makes in The Abolition of Man regarding values not based on the Tao, are fragments, they're fragments that have been wrenched from their context in the whole and then swollen to madness in their isolation. Wrenched from their context in the whole and then swollen to madness in their isolation. The problem with this wrenching and swelling of science is that on the one hand, people put faith in it for expansive results that it can't deliver. And on the other hand, that its true value is overlooked as an important component of a soul-cultivating pursuit of truth and wisdom. So I therefore think that developing a philosophically and historically informed view of what science is and is not is an incredibly important task, especially for us as classical educators. Today is to attempt to restore science to its important place in a classical liberal arts education by examining a few aspects of how scientific inquiry has been understood throughout the tradition. And in particular, I would like to argue that classical liberal arts educators should restore the intrinsic value of science by treating it as natural philosophy that is grounded in wonder and directed toward wisdom instead of as viewing science as a tool to be used for instrumental utilitarian ends. In so elevating the value of scientific inquiry, classical liberal arts educators also will inculcate in students a humble approach to science, given the limitations of science and its interdependence on other disciplines. So what I'm gonna do is just walk through each of those steps, start with a little bit of terminology and history, and then talk about uh, science as grounded in wonder and directed toward wisdom, uh, as all of philosophy is. And then finally close by addressing briefly some of the limitations of science and the humility of science as natural philosophy. It's noteworthy that throughout most of history, what today we call science has been understood as a branch of philosophy. Often throughout the tradition, the discipline of philosophy as a whole was divided into three types of philosophy, sometimes two or four. Uh, there are different taxonomies, but, but on the threefold division, uh, there's divine philosophy. Divine philosophy was the study of God or the gods. Sometimes we call this theology today or metaphysics. There's moral philosophy, the second branch. And moral philosophy was the study of right and wrong. Today we might call this ethics. And then third and finally, there was natural philosophy, which was, of course, the study of nature, of the natural world. And today we would call this probably science. Now, like I said, sometimes instead of a threefold distinction, there was a twofold distinction, such as in one of Boethius's commentaries on Porphyry. Sometimes there was a fourfold distinction, uh, such as in Hugh of St. Victor's Didascalicon. 
I'm not particularly concerned with which taxonomy we use. The point is simply that in all of these frameworks uh, throughout the tradition, what today we would call science was simply part of a broader framework of philosophical inquiry. Plato, in fact, explains in the Timaeus that what we call science gave rise to philosophy. Listen to this from the Timaeus. Our ability to see the periods of day and night, of months and of years, of equinoxes and solstices, that this is, right, inquiry into the natural world, has led to the invention of number and has given us the idea of time and opened the path of inquiry into the nature of the universe. These pursuits have given us philosophy, a gift of the gods to the mortal race. Now, in terms of terminology, it's important to keep in mind that the English word science comes from the Latin scientia, which simply means knowledge. And scientia is the Latin translation of the Greek episteme, which similarly means knowledge or demonstrable knowledge. And in this sense, there are many sciences or branches of knowledge. Robert Kilwardby, for example, he was a 13th century regent at the University of Oxford and then the Archbishop of Canterbury. He identified 40 distinct scientiae in his work on the origins of science, 40 different sciences, 40 different disciplines or branches of knowledge. Uh, interestingly, Aristotle refers to theology as a science. In fact, one of the most elevated of the speculative sciences. He concludes that natural science, like mathematics and theology, is a theoretical science, not a practical or a productive one. And th those three theoretical sciences, mathematics, theology, and natural science, are superior to the other sciences. And among the three, he says, theology is superior since it deals with the highest genus of being. Now, today it would sound funny if I were to say, I'm a scientist, and you were to say, uh, oh, really, of what? And then I re were, were to respond, well, I'm a scientist of theology. I study the divine. I study knowledge of the divine. Uh, to our ears, that sounds funny. Most of us would say, no, no, science is one thing, theology is another. Those are two uh, very different things. But throughout the history of the tradition, that would have been a common way of using the term science. Even theology is one type of science, just like the other branches of knowledge that seeks knowledge of various aspects of the world. Now, in addition to referring to a specific branch of knowledge, scientia also was used to refer to a certain habit of mind or an intellectual disposition that characterizes those who know. So Aquinas, for example, refers to scientia as a habit of mind and an intellectual virtue that along with the other intellectual virtues of intellectus, understanding, and sapientia, wisdom, is able to perfect our intellectual powers. In 1566, the English physician John Securis writes, science is a habit and a disposition to do anything confirmed and had by long study, exercise, and use. In Thomas Holyoke's 1676 dictionary, scientia is defined as, properly speaking, the act of the knower and secondarily, the thing known. So science or scientia is the act of the knower and the thing known. French philosopher René Descartes defines scientia as the skill to solve every problem. 
Now, note the incredible breadth that is encapsulated by those understandings of scientia. It's incredibly broad, much broader uh, and more ample than the way that we would think of science narrowly defined today. Okay, so the English word science, likewise, had a much broader meaning uh, throughout history than it, than it often does today. In the 15th to 17th centuries, for example, uh, we can find published books that refer to the natural and moral sciences, the science of physic or medicine, uh, science of surgery, science of logic, of mathematics, of accounting, of architecture, of geography, of sailing, of surveying, of defense, of music, of pleading in court, uh, the science of angels, the science of flattery, uh, even in, in one case, uh, the science of drinking, okay? In 1651, Thomas Hobbes published his Leviathan, in which he treats the terms science and philosophy as synonymous uh, throughout. And the 1771 Encyclopedia Britannica defines science thus. Science in philosophy, note the assumption that science is is a part of philosophy. Science, in philosophy, denotes any doctrine deduced from self-evident and certain principles by a regular demonstration. In the 19th century, the term science at Oxford still referred to elements of the philosophy curriculum. Okay? So as Clark and Jane correctly explain in their book, The Liberal Arts Tradition, uh, throughout the ancient and medieval periods, and, and even far beyond, science was a body of knowledge organized by the principles of demonstrative reasoning. It wasn't until the 19th century that the term science shifted to refer more exclusively uh, to what we would call the natural or the physical sciences. Okay, and as a final sort of terminological point, let me just point out that the same is true of the term scientist to describe someone who does science. Okay, the term scientist wasn't coined until 1833. It first appeared in published form in an 1834 article in the Quarterly Review. Up until the 19th century, people who we would call scientists simply considered themselves to be a particular type of philosopher, that is, a natural philosopher. For example, in their works on astronomy, Copernicus and Galileo both referred to fellow astronomers, past and present, as philosophers. Newton's most famous work, uh, which is largely about astronomy and builds on the work of Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo, is titled The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. We usually just call it the Principia, right? The Principles of Natural Philosophy. The term natural philosopher didn't begin to be entirely replaced by the term scientist until the beginning of the 20th century. So given this history, I think that in order to restore science to its proper place in a broader classical liberal arts framework, we should think about science as natural philosophy as it has been understood throughout the tradition. Now, what are the implications of this? What does it mean to say that, that science should be thought of as natural philosophy? I'd like to partially answer that question by focusing on two defining characteristics of philosophy. The first is that philosophy begins with wonder. Philosophy begins with wonder. And the second is that philosophy is directed toward wisdom. And as we'll see, conceiving of science as grounded in wonder and directed toward wisdom leads us to a very different understanding of the purpose of science education than that held by many people today. The purpose of science education, like the purpose of all classical education, 
is to cultivate a certain kind of human being who is equipped to live well. Okay, so let's start by looking at philosophy, science as, as philosophy, as grounded in wonder and directed toward wisdom. From the ancient Greeks onward, it's been understood that the beginning of philosophy is wonder. In the Theotetus, for example, in response to a series of puzzles about the nature of change posed by Socrates, Theotetus finally exclaims, I often wonder like mad what these things can mean. Sometimes when I'm looking at them, I begin to feel quite giddy. And Socrates responds by saying, ah, this, well, he doesn't say ah, I, I added the ah. He says, this is an experience which is characteristic of a philosopher. This wondering, this is where philosophy begins and nowhere else. Aristotle similarly writes in the Metaphysics that it is owing to their wonder that men both now begin and at first began to philosophize. Okay, and throughout history, many thinkers have echoed this claim that the beginning of philosophy is wonder. I'll give you just a couple more examples. Uh, James Shaw provides one of many such examples when he writes in The Life of the Mind, no one can be a potential philosopher unless something moves him to wonder, unless he is struck by the being of something not himself. Albert Einstein goes even further in his book, Living Philosophies, when he claims, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. So what does it mean to wonder or, or to marvel at something? Well, there are, I think, two aspects of it. The first is, is, is a twofold aspect, uh, is a recognition that one doesn't know something and a curiosity to know it. Okay? Now, there's both a negative and a positive aspect there. You recognize that you don't know something, but you also are curious to know it. When we marvel or wonder at something, we recognize that we don't fully understand, we don't fully uh, know it, yet we're also searching for its truth, and we have a desire to understand it. Joseph Pieper expresses this in the Philosophical Act when he says, it is only someone who does not yet know fully who wonders. And that's a great articulation. Someone who does not yet know fully. I love the, the sense both of lack and, and in, of anticipation expressed by those words. It's not just a resigned, well, I don't know, right? It's a recognition that I don't know yet, right? I want to know. Aquinas similarly defines wonder in the Summa as the desiderium sciendi, the longing or the active desire for knowledge, that is, science. Okay? So Shalvas writes, Please, God, that we all find ourselves in this condition of those who know that they do not know. I love such students, such potential, such potential philosophers, as I call them. So that's one aspect, this dual recognition that you don't know, but you want to know. Hey, that's part of wonder. The second aspect of what it means to wonder or to marvel at something is that it often, though not always, but often involves a kind of simplicity. To wonder means to look at something that others take for granted and realize that there's a deeper meaning to it that we do not fully understand. Thus, Pieper claims to perceive all that is unusual and exceptional, all that is wonderful in the midst of the ordinary things of everyday life is the beginning of philosophy. 
Philosophers look at things that others take for granted and ask deep questions about them. Hey, so let me give you just one example. There are legion, but one example from natural philosophy uh, might be Newton watching apples falling uh, and then starting to ask deep questions about the quite ordinary phenomenon that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years, which is that if you drop something, it falls toward the earth, right? Gravity. Now, the legend, of course, is that Newton first discovered uh, gravitation when one day when he's sitting under a tree and gets hit on the head by an apple that's falling. And that's probably not true, right? This is a sort of historical fiction. But Newton did himself claim that he had started thinking about gravitation after watching an apple fall from a tree, okay? So uh, it's, it's not uh, completely false. Uh, what made Newton different from everyone else in, in that case, who, like, for thousands of years, right, people have been watching apples fall from trees. What made Newton different is that he saw in that motion something that he couldn't explain fully. Aristotle had taught that when a force is constantly applied to an object, the object moves at a constant speed, and then when the force is removed, the object returns to rest. Well, that makes, you know, that's, that's a functional explanation. It works just great if you're pushing a table or a chair across the floor. Uh, but Aristotle's theory doesn't adequately explain the motion of a falling apple. Where's the force coming from that pushes the apple down toward the ground and continues to push the apple even once it's not touching anything, right? Philosophy, natural philosophy, that is science, okay, starts with topics that may seem fairly simple and then marvels at their deep complexity. Now, it's interesting to note that people who are filled with this kind of wonder often appear naive or even childlike. Hey, consider the small child who's transfixed by the fact that the helium balloon goes up instead of down, right? It's, this, it's magic, it's, a, it's marvelous, okay? But we have to give children time. We have to remember to give them time to marvel at things, to wonder at things, instead of just rushing them through life. Uh, it's very easy for us to, to, you know, stop looking at balloons. We're, we're going to be late for school where you have to go learn things, right? They're in the middle of, of the, one of the deepest pursuits possible, right? This, this sense of wonder. Children are often the best scientists, philosophers, because they haven't yet lost their sense of wonder. They're not afraid to acknowledge that they don't know and then ask simple questions that everyone else just takes for granted. Now, I think it's useful to think about for us as well. When, when was the last time that you experienced a sense of wonder? One of the most difficult tasks for us as educators today in our contemporary context, I think, is that our students, and we as well, uh, largely due to immersion in various forms of media, but there are other causes also, we've been drastically dulled in our ability to truly marvel at simple things and be amazed by them. In a world of digitally enhanced everything, from pictures of landscapes to music to special effects movies to the bodies of models, it's very difficult to maintain a simple sense of wonder and need not to be continually uh, more sensationalized. Pieper writes this, our sense of wonder in the philosophical meaning of the word is not aroused by enormous sensational things, though that is what adult sensibility requires to provoke it to an experience of wonder. A man who needs the unusual to make him feel wonder 
shows that he has lost the capacity to find the true answer to the wonder of being. The itch for sensation is a sure indication of a bourgeois mind and a deadened sense of wonder. Shaw similarly writes that we live in a world surrounded by noise, by a kind of strident unrest that fills our days and nights. We have so many things to distract us, even if sometimes we think they might educate us. We find the time first by becoming interested, by longing to know. So if we want to cultivate our students into scientists, into natural philosophers, we have to cultivate in them from the earliest age, the whole way through their education, we have to cultivate in them a sense of wonder. So let's turn now from wonder to wisdom. What's the goal of philosophy and therefore of science as, as a part of philosophy? Well, it's wisdom. Philosophy, literally, etymologically, just means the love of wisdom, philia and sophia. So a philosopher is someone who loves wisdom, whose goal is the attainment of wisdom. A life of wisdom is the goal, the telos of the entire pursuit. Aquinas, in fact, explicitly connects wonder and wisdom. So this, the beginning of philosophy and its end goal. Aquinas writes, wonder is the beginning of wisdom. That's how it starts. You start with wisdom, I'm sorry, you start with wonder, and then it is directed toward wisdom. I want to draw out two aspects of understanding the study of science, or natural philosophy, as directed toward the goal of wisdom. The first is that science understood in this way uh, guides us toward an understanding of the kind of thing we are as human beings, of the kind of a place the world is in which we live, and then given those two truths, how we ought to live as a part of the world. Now, that's a very different uh, understanding of the purpose of science than an understanding of science as directed toward teaching us how to master the world we've been given to control it and to use it for our own purposes or ends. And the second related point is that science understood in this way guides us toward living well, and that has moral implications. So first, in pursuing wisdom, we learn about who we really are as human beings. Cicero, for example, writes in the laws, Wisdom is the mother of all good things. The love of her gives us the word philosophy from the Greek. Of all the gifts which the immortal gods have bestowed on human life, none is richer or more abundant or more desirable. In addition to everything else, okay, this is wisdom, she alone taught us this most difficult lesson, namely to know ourselves, a precept of such power and significance that it was ascribed not to any mortal, but to the God of Delphi. Okay, in the temple of Apollo, the inscription, know thyself. And Cicero goes on to write that the person who knows himself will first of all realize that he possesses something divine, and he will compare his own inner nature to a kind of holy image. Similarly, throughout the consolation of philosophy, Lady Philosophy repeatedly claims that Boethius' problem is that he doesn't understand his own nature in light of the divine. He doesn't understand what or who he truly is. Okay, so the, the always incomplete attainment of wisdom gives us insight not only into the world around us, the nature of God and the world, but also into who we are as human beings. What is our nature as human beings? 
Next, consider Plato's justification in Book 7 of the Republic for why students should study astronomy. What justifies the study of astronomy? Well, he says of astronomy that in every soul there is an instrument that is purified and rekindled by such subjects. And he praises astronomy because it compels the soul to look upward and leads us from things here to things there. Now, think about how for thousands of years, human beings have looked up at the sky every night and seen the stars. Think about how they've regulated their lives by the position of the heavenly bodies, when to plant crops, when to harvest crops, when the seasons will change, when to set sail, how to navigate a ship, etc. Since at least as far back as 3500 BC in Egypt, astronomy has been used for timekeeping, for navigation, and Clark and Jane point out, it thus helped ancient cultures establish a sense of history and place. The study of astronomy, in other words, teaches us about the kind of place the universe is and about our place as human beings living in it. Okay, and again, that is a very different posture toward the value of studying science than an understanding of science as directed toward teaching us how to master the world or control it for our own purposes. Okay, the second related point is that science understood as the pursuit of wisdom is directed toward living well. Aristotle draws a distinction between theoretical wisdom and practical wisdom, or phronesis. Theoretical wisdom is a combination of knowledge and intuitive reason of the things that are highest by nature, whereas practical wisdom, which we must learn through practice and the formation of habits, is the ability to apply general principles to specific cases. Okay? So, for example, I may know as a general rule that I should love other people, but phronesis or practical wisdom uh, consists in my ability to interpret that or translate that knowledge into action uh, when, for example, a colleague mistreats me or I hear about a group of people who are suffering uh, that I could help or uh, a classmate pushes me on the playground or any other such situation. Okay? Practical wisdom involves in taking the general principles and translating them into, uh, into action, into uh, specific cases. Okay, so wisdom is not merely knowledge. What we see throughout the tradition is that the goal of philosophy, and hence in this framework of, of natural philosophy, of science, is not merely acquiring knowledge, but learning how to use whatever knowledge you might have in order to live well, to live a life of wisdom. Okay, so within this framework, the goal of studying science is to learn how to live well. And this, as I mentioned, has moral implications. Harrison notes regarding Aquinas, for example, that scientia is not only a personal quality, but also one that had a significant moral component. According to Aquinas, a lack of moral character actually has a negative effect on one's ability to do science. As Eleanor Stump explains, carnal vices result in a certain culpable ignorance and mental dullness, and these in turn get in the way of understanding and scientia. And for Aquinas, all true excellences of intellect, wisdom, understanding, and scientia is possible only in connection with moral excellence as well. 
Going back to Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle claims it is impossible to be practically wise without being good. So if we understand science as the pursuit of wisdom, and th this wisdom uh, in part consists of being good, science has moral ends, okay? It, ha it has an end that goes far beyond just acquiring knowledge in order to be able to do things with it. So if we think about science in this way, what are the criteria that we should use to evaluate a science program based on the tradition's understanding that scientific study is directed toward a life of wisdom and virtue, okay? Uh, an education with wisdom as its end goal or, or telos can't be evaluated very accurately, I would argue, by quantitative testing over curricular content at the end of each chapter or at the end of the year or at the end of a child's education. If a school's purpose is to lead students on a quest toward wisdom and virtue, then why in the world would we think that the school's effectiveness or a teacher's effectiveness at the end of a year, right? But in the case of the school, the school's effectiveness could be judged by a test that its 17 or 18-year-old students take. A much better measure, though more difficult to express, uh, admittedly in a, in a glossy brochure, the next year is, what are the students like in 10 years or 20 years or 40 years or 60 years? What are they like as parents and grandparents? How are they involved in their churches and communities? What have they done to maintain a lifestyle of learning? How do they serve those around them? How do they contribute to their country and society? Do their lives reflect a love of wisdom? Those are the kinds of questions that a school and even a science program should be asking in order to evaluate itself. Now, this is, this is I think, incredibly powerful and, and inspirational because science, when we understand it, when we restore it to the tradition and understand it as natural philosophy, science has an incredibly important, liberating role to play in students' development. Science does not merely teach students the instrumental mechanical skills that they need to go out and control the world around them. Rather, science helps to cultivate their humanity. It helps students to understand themselves as human beings, the nature of the world around them, and what it means to live a wise and virtuous life as a human being in that world. Today, we tend to think of concerns regarding the nature of the physical universe and its operations as distinct from concerns regarding the goals of human existence okay? and, and the source of moral values. Uh, these are sometimes uh, distinguished as the, the distinct realms of science and religion, respectively. Harrison writes, however, in his book, The Territories of Science and Religion, that in studying the past, we find the boundaries of these two domains have been understood very differently. And we find that the questions concerning ultimate human meaning and value were rarely divorced from understandings of the nature of the universe. So this traditional view of science as natural philosophy, grounded in wonder and directed toward wisdom, is very different than the modern scientific project on which the purpose of science is to give human beings control over the world around them. As Clark and Jane explained, for preceding generations, science was the pursuit of truth, whereas today, the pursuit of science is almost the same thing as the pursuit of technology. They go on to argue that when science is understood merely as technology, it only cares about how to control things. 
According to John Henry Newman, however, science is liberal knowledge, not useful knowledge. Its value lies not in its practical utilitarian benefit. Rather, it's valuable even prior to any mechanical benefits it might have. He says this in the idea of, of a university. The principle of real dignity and knowledge, its worth, its desirableness, considered irrespectively of its results, is this germ within it of a scientific or a philosophical process. This is how it comes to be an end in itself. This is why it admits of being called liberal. Now note that on Newman's definition of science, most of what's covered by STEM disciplines today doesn't even count as science because it's useful mechanical knowledge. Science understood as natural philosophy, on the other hand, is intrinsically valuable and helps us to understand ourselves and the world around us so that we can adjust our lives in conformity to those realities. Okay, now, I also just want to point out before I move to the, to the last uh, short section here that science education thus understood shares the same goals as classical liberal arts education writ large. So the cultivation of virtue and wisdom are throughout the tradition the standard and ubiquitous goals of education. I don't have time to unpack that claim today, so I'm just going to assert it, okay? Um, but, but that's true. And so the study of science, when understood as natural philosophy in the way that I've been articulating, is therefore aligned with the purpose. It's aligned in purpose with the rest of the educational enterprise. This view of science dignifies science and science education. Science education and the study of science is about forming human souls, it's not just about building bridges or faster computers or teaching students how to get good jobs that pay a lot of money. Finally then, I want to close by pointing out that while elevating the purpose and importance of science, this view of science as natural philosophy also engenders humility based on a recognition of science's limitations. The scientific disciplines, like all disciplines, are parts of a whole and do not have exclusive or privileged access to knowledge. Every branch of knowledge, including what we now call the sciences, every branch is necessarily limited in its ability to access truth. Scientific inquiry, therefore, should always be characterized by humility. An understanding of the unity of knowledge is a key characteristic of classical liberal arts education throughout the tradition. John Henry Newman, for example, famously describes the unity of the branches of knowledge, claiming that all knowledge is a whole and the separate sciences parts of one. He goes on to argue that all branches of knowledge complete, correct, balance each other. There is no science but tells a different tale when viewed as a portion of a whole, from what it is likely to suggest when taken by itself without the safeguard, as I, as I may call it, of others. Think back to uh, the quote I gave from Lewis at the beginning, right? It's torn out of a context and then swollen to madness in isolation. He says, you have to, you have to look at all of the sciences as part of a whole, as a portion of the whole, because if you don't, then they don't have the safeguards of the other disciplines. 
Sertelange sim similarly writes in The Intellectual Life, just as no particular branch of knowledge is self-sufficing, so all branches together are not self-sufficing without the queen of knowledge philosophy, nor the whole of human knowledge without the wisdom springing from the divine science itself, theology, okay? So no branch of knowledge is self-sufficing. Okay, but the popular conception of science among many people out on the street today is really a form of scientism. That, that is to say, many people assume that empirical science alone can serve as a basis for knowledge and that therefore anything that can't be demonstrated to be objectively true or false by science is not knowledge but mere prejudice or opinion. In his book, Toward a More Natural Science, Leon Cass explains one of the many problematic aspects of this view. He writes this, the pursuit of knowledge in our time differs radically from the Socratic pursuit of wisdom. Explicitly anti-philosophical in its spirit, it rejects as unworthy of its attention all questions that it cannot treat methodically and objectively, and confines its attention to those problems that permit a scientific approach and solution. It is thus, at best, neutral to the large human and metaphysical questions that dominated ancient philosophy and which human beings still ask and will always ask. Questions about meaning, being, ultimate causes, the eternity or non-eternity of the world, justice and injustice, the good, the true, and the beautiful. When we understand science as natural philosophy, on the other hand, we recognize that it is merely part of a whole and therefore should be pursued with humility. And we can't let it be swollen to madness. As Joseph Pieper writes, philosophy, including natural philosophy, science, okay, never claimed to be a superior form of knowledge, but, on the contrary, a form of humility and restrained and conscious of, the, conscious of this restraint and humility in relation to knowledge. The words philosopher and philosophy were coined, according to legend, and the legend is of great antiquity, by Pythagoras in explicit contrast to the words Sophia and Sophos, or, or uh, wisdom and, and the wise one. No man is wise. No man knows. God alone is wise and all-knowing. At the very most, a man might call himself a lover of wisdom, a philosopher, and a seeker after knowledge. Okay, so throughout the tradition, Pieper is saying, there's a humility baked into this, a recognition that we can't know everything, but nevertheless, we can engage in this pursuit, okay? Uh, the love uh, of wisdom. So, Let's restore science to the classical liberal arts tradition. Let's teach science as natural philosophy and recognize that as a branch of philosophy, science is grounded in wonder and directed toward wisdom. Let's elevate and ennoble the study of science by recognizing it, like the other disciplines, as making a significant contribution toward our students' ability to flourish as human beings and live well. And in so doing, let's acknowledge the limits of science and teach our students to approach scientific inquiry with humility as they seek to gain knowledge about themselves and the natural world in order to live lives characterized by virtue and wisdom. Thank you.
Uh, now we will have uh, several minutes to field questions from our audience. As you uh, look on the right-hand side of your screen, place your vote on one or more of those prospective questions, which we will use as a prompt for our presenter. Um, while we're waiting for some of those to come through, just a reminder to make sure you check out the virtual attendee hub for any recommended resources uh, related to your presenter's topics throughout today and tomorrow. Uh, please make sure that you, you take the opportunity to join one of the digital rooms of the forum tomorrow at 1.30 to discuss presentations and resource other practitioners and leaders. And of course, uh, as we close up today, please complete a, a brief survey to let us know what your thoughts are on this session. And if you look just below the video, that's where you should be able to locate the survey. Uh, but in the meantime, please do take a moment to, to just look at some of those questions that are coming through and uh, vote on a few of them. And we'll have Dr. Diener on screen here in just a moment uh, to, to answer some of them for us. Hi, Dr. Diener. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for that presentation. It was, it was really wonderful. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm, Thanks to uh, everyone for joining uh, and uh, and watching and and being a part of this of this conference and this discussion. Yeah, um, I I see one comment here. Not a question. Just wanted to offer applause. Fabulous session. Uh, but I do have a few questions here coming through, and it looks like some of the top ones um, are are floating to the top of my feed here. So I'll start with this one. Uh, someone says. What advice or suggestions can you offer to teachers who are looking to not only spark wonder at the start of a lesson, but guide students efficiently through inquiry without being overly didactic and without wondering too far away from the lesson? Hmm. You know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, uh, uh, as we were talking earlier, there's this constant balance between uh, taking the time to foster the sense of wonder and curiosity and also the reality that there's material uh, that has been handed to us from those who have engaged in this process uh, for many, many years and centuries uh, that, that we need to transmit to the students as well. And so uh, I, don't, I don't have a perfect bullet answer for that, but I think that it's important to keep, uh, to keep those two things in tension. And there are ways, even as we go through, uh, say at the beginning of a lesson to ask questions, right, to, to uh, uh, to stimulate students' curiosity or, or uh, engage in their complexity, but then to just kind of keep coming back to that. So I think even as you're presenting material, you ask a question, uh, you, you arouse their curiosity, and then you're trying to work through the details and give them uh, uh, some of the answers to that, to continually to come back to uh, a, a questioning mindset, a, a mindset of saying, and why would this be the case? Or or is this always true? Or what implications could we draw from this? Or what are things we still don't understand? No matter how far we go down the path of, of understanding and of knowledge about any topic, not just in the natural sciences, but in anything, there's always so much more that we don't know. And so continually recognizing we, we've achieved so much, we've learned so much, and yet let's continue to expand uh, the, the sphere of our understanding by recognizing what we don't know and then continuing to ask. So I think there's that that would be my um, my simple answer. I'm sure that uh, people who 
teach science, uh, what we call science, uh, every day uh, could give many practical examples of how you can sort of weave that in. But I just think having a disposition of one who models curiosity and wonder, uh, I, I'll say this as a final comment to this question, even demonstrating that you're curious about things that aren't what's on today's lesson is really valuable. So even as you're going through a lesson about a specific topic, um, just pausing to say, you know, I was thinking about, say it's completely, so completely unrelated, something that has nothing to do. And I was wondering, why does that happen? Or why does this work? You know, uh, it, even that, and of course, you don't want to spend too much time going down rabbit trails, but even that uh, is modeling for students uh, the life of the mind in, in a way that, uh, that uh, the life of a curious mind that's continually full with wonder and wanting to know. Thank you for that. Uh, I see someone else had a, a similar question wondering how do you balance the marvel of wondering about a natural concept with something like a laboratory discovery? Um, so, so the distinction is between some, something that exists in nature naturally and something that is uh, a discovery that is, as it were, manufactured in a laboratory? Is that the distinction? I think that's the distinction I'm seeing in the question. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm trying. I'm I'm trying to. If we were live, I would ask. I would ask to further tease out this distinction because, in in many ways, I think they're um, they're the same. I mean, what we're doing in a laboratory is isolating or um, um, uh, uh, we're isolating a specific set of phenomena that exist in other way in the natural world, but but at root, the the motivation for wanting to understand that. Um, could be the same, I would think, right? The motivation for uh, gazing up at the stars at night and at the sky at night and wondering why the planets move the way they do uh, could be the same, the, the same motivational structure from wondering what happens if we add chemical X with chemical Y in a, in a beaker or what happens if we uh, heat different elements to certain temperatures or something like that. So, um, while the, while the, the uh, environment is different and one is more natural than the other in a certain sense, it seems to me like the motivational structure for why we care about what we find uh, can, be, can be very, very similar. Thank you. Uh, I see we have a, a few more questions starting to float to the top here as people are voting. Uh, it looks like one of the next questions says, you mentioned the limits of what we can know. I think they're referring to the the, the paper quote that you had there. Um, how can a teacher preserve a sense of excitement about what we do know and humility in recognizing that we can't know everything, but it's still meaningful and worthwhile to try? Well, that's a great that's a great set of questions. I remember uh, when I was getting ready to go to graduate school, a mentor. Uh, and friend professor of mine said, he said, you know, uh, you're getting ready to embark on a journey where supposedly you're going to become the, the, the expert in some very, very, very narrow subfield. Uh, you're supposed to demonstrate your expertise. And he said, what you'll realize is that the further you go in, uh, the more you don't know. Uh, you'll, you'll come to understand how ignorant you are more poignantly than you do right now, even as you set about this project of, you know, supposedly becoming the expert. So, so it seems to me like that's part of the joy of, of the life of the mind, the joy of discovery, 
uh, to, to, you know, to use a phrase for, from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia at the end, you, you're continually going further up and further in. Um, so, so the pursuit, it, I, I don't think it's uh, Sisyphistic. It's not like Sisyphus, right? You push the rock up and it comes back down. That is to say, you can never actually get anywhere. Um, we do, we do achieve things and grow in, in ways that we can mark our progress on the journey of learning. But, but one of the marvels uh, of learning and what makes education so exciting, uh, to me anyway, is that we never get to a point where we sort of check the box and are done. Uh, whether you're just starting off at a very young age or whether you are you, you know, uh, at the end of your life and have spent your entire life dedicated to, to study and learning, none of us ever exhaust uh, all, that, all that there is to know and learn. So, so that's why I think th that um, developing and inculcating these, these habits of the life of the mind, the, the habits of curiosity and wonder, the habits of per the pursuit of wisdom and uh, questioning uh, what it means to live well uh, and live a wise and virtuous life. And science, as I've tried to argue, what, what we call science or natural philosophy plays an important role in that process. Uh, that is, uh, to borrow a phrase from Soren Kierkegaard, the task of a lifetime. Uh, he's using it with reference to faith. We never finish. Uh, and and uh, to me, that's exciting because it means it's a project worth, uh, worth continuing. It's not something that I'm going to uh, be able to complete by next week and then, you know, be bored. <laughs> I don't know if that helps to motivate students, but that seems exciting to me. Thank you. I could I could certainly see some students uh, wrestling with that very question themselves. Uh, so that's helpful to keep in mind. I appreciate the anecdote. Um, I see uh, another question floating up here to the top, uh, but some may say that modern science does have the good life in mind, and they put the, the good life in quotes that the results of the tech, these technological advancements do lead to better lives. Can you speak more to why this is not a satisfactory approach uh, for all humans, not just in classics or the classical liberal arts? This, I, I think they're asking about this, the modern definition of science. Yeah, so there's no, there's no question that, that modern science um, can lead to human flourishing, uh, that, that, it, that technology can uh, lead to to the good life in certain ways. Um, so, so I guess, and and you know, I drew in very broad strokes, sort of the the uh, classical liberal arts uh, approach to this versus what I sort of you know in in broad strokes called the the modern approach to science. I mean, there's a ton of unpacking that could happen there, um, but but I do think that that there is a distinction in terms of ultimate ends. So, so the whole way back in the tradition, it's been recognized that I'm thinking of like Aristotle's distinction in the ethics and the Nicomachean ethics between uh, liberal and vulgar studies uh, uh, or liberal and illiberal. It, it's been recognized the whole way back that, um, that, that there can be practical utilitarian uh, benefit to studying uh, what we normally would think of as liberal subjects, right? This is why philosophy departments love to tout the uh, the, the the salaries and job placement uh, statistics about their majors, right? To prove to everyone that studying philosophy isn't just a worthwhile, a worthless enterprise. There are these sort of practical benefits, uh, but I think within the tradition, that's not the ultimate goal. Those are byproducts or intermediate ends. Um, and so a lot, and I, I do think there's, there's, a, there's a sense 
in, again, in broad strokes, the modern scientific enterprise or the way that we think of STEM subjects, right? When we, when we hear educational policymakers or politicians talking about the importance of, let's say, the, the STEM, STEM subjects and STEM education, it's not usually uh, because this will lead to more fulfilled uh, lives characterized by eudaimonia and human good. It, it, um, that's not usually the end goal. Um, and, and as a final d distinction here, I'm thinking of, of the distinction that Lewis draws in the abolition of man in the last chapter, uh, where he says really the, 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 the impetus behind magic and the modern scientific projects, say starting with Bacon, um, are really one and the same. And those together, he, he contrasts with uh, the, the position of the ancients, which is to, to learn about nature in order to conform ourselves to it. So uh, whereas the modern project, he says, is to uh, to master nature, to conform it to us. So, so certainly there are goods that can come of technology and, and the way that science is done uh, contemporary con in our contemporary context uh, or post-scientific revolution. Absolutely. Uh, but I think if we, if we ensconce it or place it within this longer tradition, it helps us to see that those aren't ultimate ends. The ultimate ends are something that, that what we call science uh, share with the other disciplines. They all work together uh, toward common goals. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm watching the clock here and it looks like we have time for maybe just one more question. And uh, the question that's coming up to the top of the feed here is, how do you reconcile the desire to integrate natural philosophy into the classroom while still meeting the demands of parents who are looking for STEM-based classes that compete in a modern world? Well, since we are running out of time, I will say, uh, if anyone wants to, to write the definitive book on that subject, uh, please do so, uh, because I'm sure it would be a bestseller. These, this is in constant tension, so let, let me offer just a couple of thoughts. Uh, one is that I think that that question is something that in, in classical education, classical liberal arts education, we face on all fronts. That is, that is not just endemic to the sciences. Um, certainly in our current, current context, parent, parental expectations with regard to uh, science and math, especially in certain parts of the country and certain demographics is very high. But this is, this is a, a similar kind of issue that we face across our, our educational paradigm as we try to show uh, parents that that we're, we're we are uh, we have our goals set as I said much higher on on what their students become in ten or forty or sixty years, while at the same time uh, trying to provide uh, evidence that this education works quote unquote on their terms. Uh, my my final thought would just be that it can be a both and. So uh, you know uh, for example uh, I often point out to parents the the motto of. Uh, Hillsdale Academy is virtus et sapienti, it's virtue and wisdom. Uh, virtus et sapienti is our, is our goal, it's our telos, it's, it's what motivates and drives so much of what we do. Uh, but if you're standing in our lobby, you can turn around from the banner that has that motto and see the quite impressive list of National Merit Scholar uh, recognitions uh, that we've had over uh, a number of decades, right? Um, and so there's a byproduct that comes from that. Uh, and so I think it, as much as we're able to talk about this as a both and, um, and help address parent concerns, because I think classical education has a proven track record, even in terms of some of those utilitarian uh, motivations, but also help continually to, to redirect their gaze towards something broader uh, and higher. I, I think we can, we can hopefully strike 
uh, a balance. It's not, it doesn't have to be one or the other. All right, well, it looks like we are running out of time. So I just wanna say thank you again uh, so much, Dr. Diener, and thank you to everyone for attending this session of the symposium. Thank uh, you all so much. We're gonna go ahead and close much. up the meeting and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thanks.